0: A WBZ original.
1: Yeah, afterwards she was like, I can't believe how many different topics you wanted to cover.
2: Mm-hmm. Especially uh, impressive feet, considering that she had to be looking at Liam the entire time.
3: <laughs> I know. <laughs> kind of As distracting. we know, Andrew Yang almost couldn't handle it.
1: Did you have to use the word feet in that <laughs> sentence?
3: <laughs> Bitty kind of gloomy outside but we're cheery in the studio BZ studio because <laughs> we really. are still Alston's number one <laughs> podcast. It is season 4 episode 5 and welcome. I'm Paula Evan
1: I'm Liam Martin. I, I do feel I'm my personality completely shifts daylight saving and then after daylight saving. Yeah, it's mm. tough. Completely I, I become a terrible person. I go from being terrible person to you know <laughs> Really, terrible.
3: like you didn't verse. acknowledge John Keller's presence. Yeah,
1: no, John. Hi, John. <laughs> yeah, hi. you and I both feel the same way, though. That once it gets to that, that four thirty sunset, yeah.
4: it's horrible. Just it
1: it. shut the hell off.
4: <laughs> <really>. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the only thing I can say is this time of year doesn't does remind you though when you would come home after school late in the afternoon and it was already dark, but your mother was cooking dinner and the mm. house smells great and it's a little cozy. That's what I try to focus on. Mm. If.
2: Ed Markey is smart. He will run for re-election to the Senate against Joe Kennedy strictly on the basis of the lead role he played in getting the start of standard time pushed back. Remember, Mm. it used to be earlier Yes, in October. He took that ball and we we go back to longer daylight earlier Mm. in March Mm -hmm. and we end it later in the fall. Of
3: course, if Eric Fisher, we would completely abandon the entire thing and never change yeah, the He would just go daylight Fox.
2: saving for the whole year. Right. Maybe Eric Fisher should be senator. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Let's talk about uh, what's coming up this week.
1: Yes, I spoke one-on-one with Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins, one of the most interesting politicians in the state who, uh, for now 10 months, has been the district attorney of Suffolk County. She has... Um, created all kinds of conversations about the crimes that we prosecute versus the crimes we don't. She faced a lot of criticism recently with the straight Pride Parade protests in Boston when she elected to drop the charges against some of the protesters who were arrested by police. I asked her about that criticism, her response to it, and we talked about a bunch of other things, Mm. including safe consumption sites as well, which she sports.
2: And she is my fellow Cantabrigian homie. Oh, I oh, didn't know, know that. that. Yep, grew up know. right around the corner from me. So
1: we have an extended interview with uh, Rachel Rollins.
3: Excellent. Also an extended interview with the McCourty brothers. I had the chance to go down to Gillette Stadium, talk to them after practice one day. Really fascinating interview. Of course, you can hear the entire thing here that we didn't have time for on TV about the role that they played in the Student Opportunity Act, which has been working its way through the legislature this year, uh, really interesting. We'll explain as we discuss it what the act is about. But then also, I talked to former Education Secretary Paul Revel, and uh, you'll hear from him about what he thinks of the act, what he thinks we really need to do to improve education. This in is the big funding now. bill that would the change the funding, funding formula yeah. for in uh, districts with low-income families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, John. Yeah. We're going to talk about how you're a Zoomer.
2: I don't know. What does that mean, Jonathan? What's a Zoomer? What's it's, a Zoomer? It's, it's uh, Generation Z or, you know. Uh, In between. Right.
3: The, the generation after, after Millennials, millennials you know, like, is Generation
2: Z. No, no. I'm a boomer. I'm a but total he's boomer. he's a boomer. Late wave, but. Attitude wise. But you're a oh, Zoomer. Oh, attitude You mean I'm a hip cat? Is that what you're trying to say? I really, <laughs> yeah, I really, that really cat appreciate it. that. Hip
1: cat might literally be the most baby boomer way of saying that you're with it. With a hip cat, Hi, you, you're going to than hip. Pop the collar
2: on your leather jacket now as well, and
3: that's
1: well, you know hipness. That's it, is when you're B a
2: jet, you're a jet it? all the way. That's right. As the Tower of Power once said, <laughs> "Hipness is what it is, but sometimes hipness is what it ain't." Words <laughs> Who said that? By. The Tower of Power. The, the Tower. Of, of what power. is the Tower of Power? Yeah, we'll talk later. All right. All
5: right.
1: As a district attorney, she has become one of the more talked about politicians in all of Massachusetts. Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins joins us now. Rachel Rollins, thank you so much for coming on the of show. Course. We appreciate it. Let's start with the case of In Young Yu. This is the former Boston College student. Your office has charged her accusing her of pressuring her boyfriend to kill himself. She allegedly sent hundreds of text messages to BC student Alexander Urtula, urging him to commit suicide. And, in fact, your office says that she was present when he did jump off a building the day of his graduation from Boston College. Why did you decide to pursue this case?
4: Yeah, so um, we... we at first, uh thought this was just a tragedy. And the good work of the MBTA police and others, um, after looking at the uh, Mr. Ertula's phone, saw just um, some really concerning information, thousands of texts, 47,000 uh, texts um, approximately. So what was really um, clear to us was that we... We did not just have a suicide on our hands. We had somebody who we believe, um, and a grand jury returned indictments, was um, manipulating and influencing this person and and, um, essentially beating them down mentally um, very, very often. It's just a really sad situation.
1: There will be free speech advocates who say she didn't push him off the building. She didn't hand him a weapon. She used speech. And that that's protected by the First Amendment. What would be your response to
4: yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it, this, these, these cases aren't easy. And we saw with Michelle Carter, which is a case, again, out of Massachusetts, where um, a judge uh, found that she was responsible, and the Supreme Judicial Court just upheld that. So we have pending legislation right now. Um, where assisted suicide essentially would be um, a crime in and of itself and there wouldn't have to be mans- manslaughter charges brought. So we are watching that very closely. But um, the, the behavior we believed was egregious and criminal, and we do what's right, um, whether it's easy or not. And we believe a jury is going to make a determination in the future.
1: In Young, you, the defendant in this case, is in South Korea. Are you going to be able to get her back to the United States to stand trial, do you think?
4: We are We are cautiously optimistic, and we're working with counsel of hers to do so. Um, but we are also prepared, if extradition is required, to be uh, able to do that smoothly. And what I think really this shows, Liam, is domestic violence looks very different than maybe a lot of people think it does. Um, and so with the Michelle Carter case, for example... Um, The protagonist was a woman um, in that circumstance, as is here. Um, But I just want people to know that it's not just physical violence. There can be emotional, psychological, financial. um, You know, if somebody's taking your paycheck, for example, or you know, not allowing you to see friends, get the help that you need, whether it's a crime or not. We want people to know that our office is available to get them services or point them in the right direction.
1: You traveled last week to South Carolina to interview Senator Elizabeth Warren about criminal justice reform specifically. Are you endorsing her in the primary?
4: I had not before I questioned her, but I afterwards with Larry Krasner, who's the district attorney in Philadelphia, um, he and I both endorsed her after that um, after that forum, and I believe she gets it, right? So she is our senior senator here. We've worked very closely on some criminal justice reform issues within the state. Um, and as the hopefully next president of the United States, we talked about what a Department of Justice looks like in a Warren presidency, what the Article Three judges, the federal judges around the country would look like, um, whether she would bring back pattern and in practice investigations um, of, of the uh, local police departments um, and consent decrees, the things that we saw Attorney General Sessions say he was no longer going to be pursuing. So we had a really robust good discussion. Um, I did support her. Um, I've also supported Senator Markey. Um, mm-hmm. They were both very helpful in my campaign less than a year ago um, when I was running for office myself.
1: One of the issues you discussed with Senator Warren is safe injection sites or safe consumption sites. Uh, this is where drug addicts could go and have a safe place under supervision to take certain drugs. Why do you support those?
4: So I think what I'd love you to hear me say is, Liam, if the option is we're going to do nothing and keep it just the way that it is, or we're going to say yes to something that you might have a lot of questions about, but we're going to keep the conversation going, I'm always going to be a yes. And what I like to remind people is, as DA, I'm the one that gets the phone call when people are overdosing and dying. It's not the governor. It's not the attorney general. It's not the U.S. attorney. It's the district attorneys. It's the state police and local police that are finding these people people, um, and they are suffering from a health issue, right? And so for me, what I look at is nothing should be off the table. Mm -hmm. Do I have questions about safe consumption sites? Of course I do, right? Um, Yes, they're happening in other parts of the country, and we're prepared to move forward potentially in Philadelphia. We just had a Good ruling from a federal judge there who said safe consumption sites do not violate the Federal Controlled Substance Act, which is what our U.S. attorney, Andy Lelling, is threatening here if we had one in Massachusetts. So, look, I think we just need more discussions about it, and nothing should be off the table.
1: People in Boston will potentially look at a place like Methadone Mile, where there have been recent reports of violence and issues in that area. And they'll be concerned Mm -hmm. about having more of those places around the state. What do you say to people who have that concern?
4: Yeah, so we had an incident where a corrections officer was um, attacked. And um, as a result of that, there was some uh, police activity uh, called Operation Clean Sweep. What I can tell you is the individuals that attacked that corrections officer have been held accountable by my office. The police arrested them. We had them arraigned and they were charged with the, the violent crimes that they had committed. But Liam, there were a lot of other people there that are um, are suffering from a substance use disorder, which is a health issue. And so if you were charged with possession, rather than putting you in Nashua Street or South Bay, I would rather get you a bed and get you the treatment that you desperately need. So this is not condoning bad behavior. It's a health issue. If you had diabetes, no one would be mad at you because you were diabetic. Or I'm a breast cancer survivor. Nobody ever was mad at me about having cancer. Addiction is real. These are people, right? And I think we've lost, lost track of the fact that these are, these are human beings that we are seeing out there that are hurting and we need to help them and jail isn't the right place for them.
1: You faced some criticism recently after the straight pride parade in Boston. Some of the protesters were arrested for crimes ranging from disorderly conduct to assaulting officers. Mm -hmm. You dropped some of the charges that became a court battle. Why did you drop those charges?
4: So, First and foremost, the individuals that assaulted our our law enforcement officers were held accountable. They were arraigned and they were charged. Um, The individuals that don't have a criminal record, that were exercising their First Amendment rights to protest, whether I agree with what they're saying or not, is irrelevant. Um, But if they were not violent or if the police reports were not complete enough for us to sustain the charges, then I'm never going to prosecute those cases. And so we have the power. Prosecutors have had the power since time. Um, eternal, I would say, to use our prosecutorial discretion. There was a judge that wouldn't allow us to do that. Um, it was unheard of, quite frankly, so we filed something called a 2113. It's an emergency petition up to our Supreme Judicial Court, and within 24 to 36 hours, the judge came back and said, you're right. Um, and so why we did that, Liam, is because there's a separation of powers. Um, imagine if a judge was able to say, as the referee, um, no, no prosecutor, you have to move forward with this case, and therefore he's telling me how we have to use our limited resources. There's a reason we're separate, and there's a reason why a a Supreme Judicial Court judge in record time found that we we were absolutely right. You won that case on the
1: separation of powers, but some police officers will argue, what's the point for them enforcing the laws if you're not then going to prosecute? How do you respond to that?
4: I would respond back, if you follow through their analysis, then what is my job? Is it that everyone you arrest, I have to prosecute? Am I a rubber stamp for the police? The police aren't elected. Remember that. The commissioner who's doing... You know, we work very well together. He's appointed by the mayor. The mayor's elected, not the commissioner. And so... Police officers use their discretion every day, Liam. They do hard work. They see somebody. They tell them, hey, put that away. I'm going to let you go with a warning right now. Anyone who's had a speeding ticket and got let off with a warning, that was a police officer utilizing their discretion.
0: While
1: in office, you have expanded the DA's Victim Witness Advocate Program. You've added a bunch of advocates, in fact, What do they do, and why did you decide that you wanted to expand that
4: program? Great question. So uh, my office is about 300 people. Half of them are lawyers. Everyone knows what those people do, right? Or they should. Um, (laughs) If not, there are investigators. There are victim witness advocates. There are admins. So victim witness advocates are the ones that... Probably, first and foremost, reach out to a victim when a crime has occurred, to let them know what the process is going to be, all the services we offer um, from our office. Investigators might help um, going out to make sure that subpoenas are given to people or they know when they're supposed to show up in court— or actually help us investigate some of the cases that we have. Our admins are doing all of the important filing and assisting us every single day. We can't do our jobs without them. What's great about Victim Witness Advocates, Liam, is we've now increased the language capacity that our VWAs have um, by almost 60%, which is wonderful, because we we have victims of all types all over Suffolk County. We have Boston, Chelsea, Winthrop, and Revere. We have people that are fluent in Vietnamese now, Spanish, Cape Verdean, Creole, Creole, obviously English. Um, We want to meet people where they are. And we, in addition to that, also have expanded the program into um, increasing the number of homicide VWAs we have. Mm. Um, Sadly, you know, all of our crimes that have victims are... Um, are terrible, but, but a homicide, this person isn't coming back. There's a hole that can't be filled with respect to um, that type of a crime. And so we want to make sure we have enough people because, sadly, uh, Suffolk County and Massachusetts, we, we have the most homicides of all the Commonwealth. Um, we want people who can help families when they're going through this trauma.
1: And you're focusing specifically on trauma response sure. with those families because there's a legacy of trauma mm-hmm. in these in some of these neighborhoods yeah. that kind of creates a cycle. Is that why you've specifically
4: expanded that program? Sure. I mean, look, we have trauma victims that are children uh, survivors of sexual assault. Um, We have people in affluent neighborhoods that have experienced trauma in Suffolk County as well. But there are some places, you're right, where if we look, Liam, at where the majority of our non-fatal shootings are or our homicides have occurred, there are certain neighborhoods that we keep hearing those names over and over again. And due to no fault of of their own, a child might be born on a street that unfortunately has a lot of high-risk behavior happening or gun violence occurring. They didn't ask to live there. They didn't ask to, um, you don't get to choose who your parents are or where you live. So we're going to try to pump resources into those neighborhoods, um, hopefully prior to them coming into contact with the criminal justice system. It's why, the why Liam, I as the DA like to testify at, up at the Statehouse about legislation for um, more money for schools, right? Because I'd rather invest in promise and opportunity and hope $15,000, $17,000 a student there, then down the road on when the I might end. see them and it's $55,000 a year to send them to the Suffolk County House of Corrections, that's a better investment as far as I'm concerned. And and I'm telling you right now, people don't blink an eye at the 55000 at Suffolk County House of Corrections. We need to be focusing our attention on the front end when people are still you know, optimistic and hopeful and eager to learn and have never touched the system in the first place.
1: One final topic I wanted to ask you about. You just got a conviction against the owner of Atlantic Drain. Two yes, men died three years ago in a trench collapse, it then filled with water, and these two men died who were workers of Atlantic Drain. You charged the owner and you charged the company involved. What was your thinking behind that prosecution?
4: Well, first and foremost, Mr. Higgins and Mr. Maddox um, were hardworking, decent men. They did a job every day of literally digging trenches, um, incredibly hard work, um, you know, died uh, unnecessarily because Mr. Otto wanted to cut corners and save, you know, save money and not be safe. Um, I can't take full credit for this district attorney, Dan Conley, um, charged this case prior to me becoming the DA and I'm proud that he did. um, Excellent work by Lynn Feigenbaum and um, uh, Michael Glennon, who are the two assistant district attorneys on this case, and Elise, the victim witness advocate, who dealt with the Higgins and the Maddox families mm. and walked them through. I mean. You have to remember, when people die, Liam, the family deals with the death. They then, if we are fortunate enough to find the person who's responsible, they have to relive that when they sit through a trial. We give them as many resources as we can, but I'm proud of D.A. Conley and and the choice he made. And... Um, Judge Kaplan found not only Atlantic Drain guilty with respect to the two manslaughter charges with respect to Mr. Higgins and Mr. Maddox, but the uh, witness intimidation charges as well, as well as against Mr. Otto. So we are looking forward to sentencing in December, but we want contractors to know if you're going to be cutting corners and putting your employees' um, safety at risk, we're going to be prosecuting you. What sentence will you be asking for? Well, we hope... uh, we're, we're not going to say yet what we're asking for for Mr. Higgins and Maddox. Sadly, I believe um, the guidelines might be smaller than we are, um, that we believe these two men, men's lives are worth. But I'm not, um, we're going to be asking for what we think is appropriate, and I think the number's going to be high. Whether Judge Kaplan gives it or not is up to him, but we're going to honor these two men's lives. Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins, thank you so much. We appreciate having you on. Thank you. Thank you, Liam.
6: This is Greater Boston, cradle of
0: American democracy.
3: Devin and Jason McCourty are so much fun to watch mm. uh, during a Patriots game. They're so talented, and their relationship is so close. They're wonderful to talk to. So I went to Gillette Stadium because I wanted to... Talk a little bit deeper with them about their involvement. We all might have noticed last spring in March that they testified at the State House uh, when uh, the legislature began to really deliberate the Student Opportunity Act, which is a bill that looks as though it's just on the verge of heading to the governor's desk. It has great bipartisan support. It will mean $1.5 billion infused into our state education system, particularly helping out school districts with a high percentage of Mm low-income students, so that obviously areas—and this goes across the Commonwealth uh, from rural districts where kids might not even have Wi-Fi. It was fascinating to talk to them about why this was so important to them. They knew every single dimension of this bill. They had followed the legislation throughout the year, intimately involved in making sure uh, that it was going to be passed, which it is, in the next couple of weeks. And then right after that, you'll hear my conversation with former Massachusetts Secretary of Education, Paul Revel. Uh, he has a new book out, and he talks about what it is we need to do heading into the next couple of decades to improve school for children in Massachusetts.
6: Creativity combined with innovations and in technology.
3: Well, let's talk about what you've been working on this year because— it's so impressive to watch you uh, as part of the Players Coalition tackle education in Massachusetts. It is an issue that I'm following all, the, all of the time and I think some people might have noticed when you testified on Beacon Hill last March or seen you wearing your t-shirts about Fund Our Future in July or seen the op-ed in the Globe. Uh, but they they might not have seen it as a whole piece. You know, understand that you're always involved in this issue. When did it become important to you? When did you decide to do that?
5: Uh, I think for a lot of players it's been, you know, really our whole careers. You know, I still remember visiting elementary schools, high schools. When I first got to New England and our off day, you know, Mm -hmm. having different setups to go places and, you know, different people. Like I had a high school teammate that was a, a, a teacher in Springfield, Massachusetts one random day I went to high school in Springfield and um, I think about about three years ago now players kind of realize like we're already doing a lot of these things like what if we form together and we start to look in some areas we've never looked in before like with policies and leg- legislation doing some of those things but we realize like it's hard to do those if you do it in this city I do it and we never kind of connect and brainstorm on what works what doesn't work um so about three years ago the players coalition really took off and started adding different members and different guys from different teams and I think since then we've been able to tackle some similar issues you know state by state mm-hmm. um, by having you know some type of blueprint to go in there and say you know this works let's try right. it let's see what happens and it's been humbling just to be a part of you know sure. some of the changes that's happened in Massachusetts
3: and it's true Jason you have a lot of players that are kind of freelancing on their own picking a charity or something that appeals to them, but this is a really good way to coalesce a lot of power.
0: Without a doubt, and I think like Deb said, you know, a (laughs) lot of guys have been doing things throughout uh, the majority of their careers, and I think when Kaepernick uh, did what he did a few years back, it just heightened the awareness and the Mm -hmm. attention. It's just been very rewarding, you know, not uh, really individually to do things, but to look at it collectively and watch uh, throughout the course of the league to see so many guys doing so many things.
3: And I know the pillars of it are criminal justice reform and police and community relationships. Mm-hmm. But this third piece of education and equitable funding, um, is this something that as you've gone through Massachusetts schools and done those visits, tell me each of you, what have you noticed when you've been in schools here? Yeah, uh,
0: it was it was a, a very awesome visit. We went to mm-hmm. Tracy Elementary um, and to go there and be around the kids and be around the teachers. I think the one thing that we all walked away from it with was just the love and care that the uh, the staff and the faculty have at, uh, at that school. And I think it was just a microcosm of just what's going on throughout the state. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people that truly care about the students and truly want to make uh, make the schools a better place and be able to help those students thrive while they're in the school and beyond. And Uh, But also the second thing that was very apparent to us was just the lack of resources, you know, whether it was from a staff um, standpoint of just not having enough, you know, whether it was space, you know, having classrooms in the hallway with things to block off so the kids don't lose their attention, whether Mm -hmm. it was not having a gymnasium or missing a science teacher or whatever the case may be. uh, You see a lot of people that love and care but not having enough resources.
3: Massachusetts has some of the best schools in the nation. We're always number one when Mm -hmm. people talk about public education but we have this continuous achievement gap, right? And that is really what you've decided to focus on.
5: And and when you asked that question, that's the first thing I thought of. Massachusetts is very unique because if you want to find the best schools in the country, Mm -hmm. you go to Massachusetts, you know, from elementary all the way up to, you know, after high school, you know, graduate school, college, you have the top universities right here. Um, But I think what goes buy and everyone misses is that gap you're talking about. Um, And that's what we talked about when we went and testified. We didn't talk about doing something new or we just talked about what if we just gave some of these kids an even playing field. What if Mm -hmm. we said you know instead of you starting behind or you having to make up for you know living in an area that is poverty stricken and you can't eat breakfast in Mm -hmm. the morning. Because the
3: focus is making sure in school districts where there is a high percentage of low-income students that more money is spent there so that those kids can get more local and state resources. Exactly.
5: And it's just trying to, to give them a chance. You know, I mm-hmm. think some of these kids started with such a disadvantage. Um, if you even get to this the average or, you know, right around that, you know, that's a huge achievement for some of these kids sure. because of how low they start. So imagine if we give them that platform to be even and um, that's something we've really focused on because I think if you can get that done here where it's a state where we say they have the best education imagine if you expand that and you put it put it in place in all you know all through America and then to the rest of the world I think you have a great chance to you know really educate some people and and make our future bright. Mm.
3: So you testified on Beacon Hill in March and you've really affected public policy now the bill passed the Senate unanimously it is in the House being debated as we speak. Um, One of the Uh, points of dispute, if you want to call it that, or one of the issues that will be debated, will be accountability. Um, That people want to make sure that the money that's given, no matter what city or town, gets it, that they're going to have to have specific recommendations and needs attached to that. How do you feel about that, about, you know, here we are in the building of do your job, right? That that it's all about accountability and that you're gonna help these kids if you're gonna get this money. People want to know specifically how the money will be used. How do you feel about that part of the debate?
0: Uh, You don't have an issue with people saying you want to know how it's going to be used and you Mm. want a plan in place to use the money. And I think um, no one has ever said there's not going to be a plan. I think with the money, obviously, there comes accountability. The people that are in charge to do so, the smart people that we've employed and that we voted for, they can put Mm -hmm. a plan in place. I think where when you talk about accountability, where it becomes tricky is when you start to assume that the teachers and the people that are at these schools aren't going to do the right thing and obviously as human beings uh, we all make mistakes we all fall short at times but you never want to just assume that the people in place aren't smart enough to do the right things with the resources or mm-hmm. put them in the right place so I think that's kind of where it becomes tricky and where the issues come up is when we just assume hey when we go visit these schools that these people that are in charge don't know what they're doing right and that's not the fact you know some of the schools that we visited you have people that Know exactly what they're doing, and they want to yeah. be able to do those things. They just don't have it to do it. So I mm-hmm. think um, we just can't assume that. If we if we hand these people the right resources to do those things, um, from me going around personally, I want to I'm going to assume that the right thing is going to be done, and that we're going to be able to close this achievement gap and accomplish the, the things that we're setting out yeah.
5: to do. I mean some of the schools we went to the teachers, uh, the principals, they found ways to get things done without the resources. They'll set
3: up a GoFundMe site on their
5: own. Exactly and sometimes like we saw one school, they put a, they had no library, they put it in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So they're finding ways to get things done so that that mentality, you know, are they going to be accountable? Are they going to do the right thing? I think, you know, we don't want to start using that as an excuse. You know, let's let's see how it works out. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I have full uh, trust that they're gonna get that done because when you go witness what some of these teachers have done to make sure kids get what they need they've gone above and beyond you know what their job calls for yeah.
3: what's your message to legislators as they debate the whole bill you just want them to get it done
5: yeah and I, that's the hard thing for us you know we play our profession is we sit in here in meetings we go to practice field and by the end of the week you either get it done or you don't get it done and when we stepped outside of that, and we stepped into you know, politics and, and legislation and all that, and it was like, all right, we talked. And then we're like, all right, well, we'll see you in a couple months, right. we'll decide. <laughs> I'm like, man, you know, and <laughs> you know, even Everybody. since the There's no reading. game
3: clock. It moves yeah, a little yeah. slowly. You always went through school together. Uh, What are your fondest memories of school? Did you always love it? Did you... uh, I know your mom was tough, (laughs) (laughs) and school was always very important to her. You lost your dad when Mm -hmm. you were three, and your mom was a registered nurse, Mm -hmm. raised you on her own, and made sure that you got to St. Joe's, which was a private Catholic high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was it a tough place? Were they demanding?
0: Yeah, yeah, but I yeah. think for us, no one was ever as demanding as mom was, so <laughs> I don't think there was a school curriculum that we were going to come mm. across where it was just going to kick our butts, because I think from early on, uh, like you said, she was a, a RN and got hurt on her job right. um, when we were just three, year olds, three years old as well, and I had to have multiple knee surgeries, and mm. um, she always says it was a blessing in disguise because that uh, the car accident that she was in while I worked at, uh, enabled her from working again, also gave her the ability to be at home. And with her at home, every day we came home from school, a lot of our friends' parents were still at work, so they dropped their bags, and they're out the door. Us, as soon as we came (laughs) in, it was like, all right, what homework you got today? So she was always on top of us, and she sacrificed uh, so much Mm. uh, for us to be able to get into St. Joe's and uh, just throughout our entire lives to be able to give us a better way. And uh, it's just been a blessing having her in our life.
3: Yeah. So as you talk to her about these issues, she must be very proud of you.
5: Yeah, that's been fun, I think. You know, obviously we've experienced and and accomplished a lot on the field, um, but I think the proudest moments when my mom, you know, whether it's a charity event we go to Mm -hmm. or when we call her and we tell her, you know, we just testified on Beacon Hill, and, you know, none of us know what that means, and we tell her how nervous (laughs) we were. I think for her, you know, she always says, you know, she understood how much she wanted to play football, but she, she never had any doubt that no matter what, we would do something that was positive in life. Um, and I think she's very proud to see that even though we accomplish our dreams of playing football, that we still go and try to do things that are bigger than football and, and tro- show true purpose.
3: Right. When we get to the end of this whole process, and hopefully the bill is complete, it's enacted, it's going to affect students starting next school year, uh, how will that make you feel that you were part of affecting this public policy?
5: Oh, it'll be awesome. You know, one thing that stuck with me. Uh, someone sent me a sermon before and the the preacher said when you get blessed you want to make sure blessings go through you and not just to you mm-hmm. and I think that's what we're a part of right now you know I think everyone puts a spotlight on us because we play football and they want to talk to us about but overall it's bigger than us it's about helping this this kid right now that you know might be in kindergarten and someday you'll go through elementary school and high school and then you'll go on to college and it'll be because we were able to be a part of this movement along with a lot of other great people that have put in a lot more time and effort than we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to, to say you were a part of that, I think, is a, is a blessing and an honor just to, to know you helped out.
3: That made me think. Is there a little friendly competition among the other members of the Players' Coalition? You'll be able to call them and say, "Hey, we got this bill passed in Massachusetts. What did you do lately?"
6: Yeah.
5: <laughs> you do. You do feel pretty good when we get on our group conference calls and we're like, you know, hey, in Boston we did this, you know. But uh, it's just a lot of good guys doing some great work. So um, I think that is a great type of competition to have, though, when everyone's trying to make a difference.
3: That's great. Well, thank you. No, no thank you. problem. Thank Appreciate you. It. So that was my conversation with the McCordy brothers, who were so impressive. And I also had a chance to interview former Massachusetts Secretary of Education Paul Revel, who has a new book out, to talk to him about, as we head really headlong into this new century, what it is we need to do to improve school in America. Paul, thank you so much. So good to uh, talk with you once again. My
6: pleasure, Paula. Thank you for having me. And
3: we've got a lot going on. I don't know if you happen to see it. I interviewed the McCourty twins the other day about their role in testifying and working for the passage of the Student Opportunity Act. Yeah. And so I know it's been, you know, just so busy up on Beacon Hill as they're it's been ironing very out. very busy
6: on Beacon Hill, but with good results. Yeah. So I'm delighted very good that it has gone through. I've worked on that some myself and it's Long overdue and will be much right. appreciated in the field if we can get it out. Sure. So you
3: know, just talking to about it with viewers over the last few weeks in various stories, um, we know of, of course it's multi-layered and essentially school districts with high a high percentage of low-income students and English language learners will have access to more local and state resources for you uh, in a sort of a boots on the ground, perspective what will be the biggest best effect of this of this bill?
6: well districts will now have access to resources that they have been sorely lacking for many many years. ever since we constructed the foundation budget as part of the 1993 uh, dramatic school reform legislation, um, the legislature was supposed to check in every couple of years by appointing a committee to review, um, the calculations that went into um, the amount of money that the state supplied to local districts—that mm. uh, kind of annual review or biannual review—didn't wind up happening uh, mm. until 2015. It happened once in between '93 and 2015, and that it's was really shocking early.
3: when you think about it.
6: Yeah, and so in 2015. Uh, I was a member of a commission. We had a commission that came to the conclusion that a substantial reinvestment was needed. Right.
3: And really with a lot of bipartisan support.
6: Well, I mean, every district... In the Commonwealth is feeling the pinch, so it's not, mm-hmm. not surprising that there's bipartisan support. Right, um, you know, it's essentially a finance bill, and so sure. the question that a lot of folks are raising is, what difference will it make in terms of education? Right, and that right. will be largely up to school districts. To
3: well, to- and this is this is an important key point because uh, accountability has been an issue, right, in various um, uh, various uh, parts of the process of the bill that some school districts sort of say they want a blank check, but, you know, you you have to have accountability along with the monies that school districts will say, well, we're going to take $100,000 and we're going to buy Chromebooks or we're going to take this money and we're going to build a library. That's become an important part of this whole issue, hasn't it?
6: Yeah, no, it's an important part. Anytime the state spends a lot of money, uh, particularly in the field of education, it raises the question, how will that money be spent? Because if you just give money to districts, Uh, It's up to the districts to decide in their discretion how to spend that Um, And if they spend it wisely it can have a very good effect Educationally if they don't uh, it'll have no effect or a negative effect And so it's always this struggle between how much state prescription you have and how much local control Mm -hmm. you have And the legislature's kind of arrived at an in-between position Mm -hmm. on that. We'll see what happens.
3: We will see as they, as they iron it up. The other issue that I did want to touch base with you on, because this piece uh, that was posted last night in the Globe was rather disturbing, that Massachusetts is always touted as number one in the nation when it comes to public schools. But on this national exam, the Boston public schools really look as though they are losing ground and, as the Globe says, are in a period of decline uh, what was your reaction when you saw these numbers?
6: Well, I mean, there are a couple of ways to look at the number. One, nationally, it's disappointing anyway, because nationally, yeah. the news is overall, uh, as a nation, we've shown no progress in 10 years, and some of the uh, achievement gaps are growing even wider. Mm. Uh, in Massachusetts, we're holding our position as number one. But that's based on averages, and we know that within Massachusetts we've got deep, persistent achievement gaps, actually nice. some of the largest in the nation, and yeah. they show up in places like Boston, and uh, right. they should be of deep concern to us. I mean, the numbers that came up in Boston show you know, uh, horrendous gaps with respect sure. to uh, uh, minority students, uh, mm-hmm. English language learners, and African American students in particular, right. and those are just intolerable.
3: I mean, shouldn't this be sending off alarm bells all over the city of Boston and the Commonwealth that this is just not something that can can go on? But, of course, part two is what do you do about it?
6: Well, I mean, it should send off alarm bells. But on the other hand, it's not really news, Paula. This is something that, uh, you know, we've known for some years. These results have been uh, uh, coming out on, on a pretty regular basis. And the question um, is, what do you do about it? And I think yeah. we now have a new superintendent, and
3: mm-hmm. and
6: uh, she's going Brenda
3: Caselius be- from Minnesota.
6: That's right. She's going to be coming up with a set of priority strategies when she's done with her listening tour here. So I'm very hopeful about that. And that the school committee sure. will back her up and doing what uh, needs to be done there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, I think some of what needs to be done goes well beyond the four walls of our schoolhouses and has to do with the conditions uh, of children's lives outside of school. So
3: if it were up to you, and we gave Paul Revel the power to take action, what do you think are the top three priorities? What what really needs to happen for these minority students to do better in school?
6: Well, okay. if I had to pick three things, I guarantee that every child has access to early childhood education. Boston's made some progress on that, but needs more.
0: Mm -hmm. I would
6: guarantee that everybody has access to high-quality summer enrichment Mm -hmm. in the 12 summers that happen between uh, kindergarten and grade 12. Mm -hmm. And then I would build our capacity in terms of public health for dealing with the mental health problems that are getting in the way of so many of our students' learning. So those would be the three things that I'd do.
3: And those are really difficult, (laughs) aren't they? Well, they're challenging.
6: I mean, there are are, uh, sort of... Coordination and resource capacity issues connected with all of them. It requires a deeper commitment, and I think that's what we're learning from these results is it's not just a function of school department performance. It's Mm -hmm. that if we're going to get all of our children up to the high level that's described on something like a NAEP test, it's going to take more than just 20% of their waking hours, which is how much time they spend in school. A lot more has to go into supporting them and providing them with opportunities.
3: Your latest book is broader, bolder, better. Uh, What do you cover in your latest work?
6: Basically, we're saying schools alone, as we currently have them constituted in our society, are insufficient to do the job that policymakers have asked them to do, which is to educate all of our children to a level heretofore enjoyed by the privileged few. In other words, if we're going to get children from Roxbury on a par with children from Weston, It's Mm. going to take a dramatically different effort than we currently have, and we're gonna have to take into account the conditions of those children's lives outside of school, outside of that 20% of their waking hours they spend in school. So it makes the case for why we need to do that and how you can do that, what sorts of interventions, strategies, programs, supports and opportunities need to be in place. Mm.
3: Well, Paul Revel from the Harvard Education Redesign Lab and uh, former Secretary of Education and author of this book, Broader, Bolder, Better. Thanks for joining us, and let's hope that as a nation we can tackle these issues and do better.
6: Well, I hope it gets put at the top of our priority list. I can't think of anything more urgent. Thank you, Paula, for having me on board today.
3: Paul, thank you.
6: The answer is more technology. Now and now and now. More, and yes. more and better,
3: more and better, and better.
1: And better. If you have been online at all over the last week, you have probably seen this hashtag trending topic, #OKBoomer. Boomer. And if you're wondering what it means, it's this, you can go see the New York Times article about it called OK Boomer Marks the End of Friendly Generational Relations. And what this is, is it is sort of a pushback from Generation Z and the Millennial Generation against the Boomer Generation, Uh, Generation Z and, to an extent, the younger millennials have grown up at a time of increasing climate change, uh, widening uh, financial inequality in America, the two different wars that we have going on. And there's a lot of discontent Mm -hmm. among those two generations and a feeling that the baby boomer generation in some way failed them. And uh, there's an interesting quote in here from... Uh, one of the people interviewed for the New York Times and it is everybody in Generation Z is affected by the choices of the boomers that they made and are still making. Mm. Those choices are hurting us and our future. Everyone in my generation can relate to that experience and we're all really frustrated by it. And this is one of the Generation Z people who was interviewed by the New York Times. And it has sparked, as is the case with everything nowadays in social media, this real debate about do they have a point and then are they making the point in a way that is mm. constructive? Well,
3: John Keller has been talking about the scourge of baby boomer politicians for years. Mm. And, yeah. John, you really believe the
2: boomers have really screwed over this There's country. no doubt about it. I mean, think about it. And you're a boomer, by the way. Oh, card carry. Absolutely. <laughs> late <laughs> wave. One of the proud. Late wave boomers. little too young for Woodstock, but vividly remember uh, Vietnam and Watergate and sure. so forth. And uh, look, the the baby boomers were not called the me generation for nothing. Hmm. The dominating characteristic of the baby boomers throughout our entire span here. And uh, first of all, understand, you know, we're talking about 100 million people. Maybe Mm -hmm. less at this point. We're starting to die off. Mm -hmm. uh, Who moved
3: through the century like locusts.
2: Well, these are sweeping generalizations. (laughs) So not everybody is going to fit into this. Of course. But, but, uh, you know, narcissism uh, and selfishness are the defining characteristics. Even uh, as the baby boomers were identified with this sort of utopian uh, communitarianism, you know, Woodstock. Communes, right? Because it's the generation thing. of the hippies, right? Uh, right. Next thing you know, they you're moving into the seventies of you know drug abuse and uh, and and uh, uh, AIDS, uh, the unaddressed AIDS crisis, and then uh, into the uh, the eighties with the the me decade, mm-hmm. you know, the decade of greed, greed real materialism. is materialism. yeah. So. You know, uh, it's a failed generation, certainly politically. I would argue outside of the uh, universal availability of good sushi <laughs> um, and maybe one or two other items, uh, nothing good has come out of the baby boom. Just a lot of destruction and uh, uh, garbage for the younger generations to have to try to clean up.
3: I actually pulled from my bookshelf, Liam.
2: Yes, a I'm tome. looking at you, Bill. That At I home. keep
3: with pride called The Bluest State, mm-hmm. written by one John Keller. Right. And here's a passage. That's
2: over 10 years old. This is, is, yeah. when this did you is write this?
3: 2007.
2: Seven, yeah. So
3: it is 12 years ago. Yeah. But here's but it his It goes take. to
2: show what a sage he is. He yeah.
3: is a sage. He foresaw all of this. Yeah. And I quote, boomers and broken contracts seem to go together like a tasteful wine food pairing on the menu of the bistros they like to frequent from the gingrich era contract with america to the bipartisan promises of social security health care and campaign finance reform conservative and liberal boomers alike have specialized in sweeping visions that somehow are never quite realized or as in the case of the big dig consummated with appalling costs and consequences. How ironic that the most popular politician in Massachusetts regularly takes heat from boomer pundits and Pauls for failing to make grandiose promises. If there is a vision for the next term, it's not yet apparent, wrote a Boston Herald columnist on the eve of his landslide reelection to a third term. Who is that?
2: Tom Manina, the late Tom Manina. Tom Manina. yeah.
3: Added a Globe columnist, if there is a vision, it needs rearticulation and readjustment. Yeah. So what was it about all their grand visions they couldn't realize?
2: Well, where do, where do you start? I mean, uh, you know, boomers, we were going to re- reshape the world, and every generation Think sort so. of thinks that. I mean, you, what's that old saying? If you're not a, uh, a liberal when you're 20, you're right. you have no heart. If you're yeah, not a conservative—, conservative. By the time you're 40, you have no brain. When something like that. Mm
1: -hmm. Can we talk about the other angle to this, though, which is that, and it says here in this New York Times article, another quote from someone, in the end, and this is from a Generation Z person, in the end, boomer is just a state of mind. Anyone can be a boomer with the right attitude. Hmm. You don't like change. You don't (laughs) understand new things, especially Hmm. related to technology. You don't understand equality. Being a boomer is just having that attitude. It can apply to whoever is bitter toward change. Hmm. And I think that will strike a lot of people as true. On the other hand, obviously, this does not apply to all baby boomers. My mom and dad are baby boomers. They don't fit this description whatsoever. And this OK boomer phrase is by Hmm. design dismissive of an entire generation of America a generation, by the way, that will probably represent the largest portion of the electorate in 2020. Mm-hmm. So, are we going to dismiss an entire generation of Americans and make them feel alienated?
3: Yeah. I know don't know I that this feel, is a constructive though, thing. You know, like John was say, every generation thinks that they've experienced everything first. And it's they kind were, of like everybody who has a baby thinks it's the first baby ever born. And
2: it's driven to repudiate the older generation.
3: Yeah. What it is, is social media, like everything, is like jet fuel. And so you see on a daily basis this fight between the boomers and the millennials. Mm -hmm. They're just able to supercharge it now.
2: I mean, you're right, Liam. It's not constructive necessarily, although I think there is some value in generational awareness. It's the prism through which I've done a lot of my political analysis Mm -hmm. over the years, not Mm -hmm. just in the blue estate, but in, in other areas. And... I think while, again, it's not an exact science, okay, we're, talk- we're talking about many, many millions of people, and uh, any generalization has its limits. I think it's valuable to think of, pe- of a group of people who move through the same experiences, mm-hmm. public experiences together, and the same cultural changes as having formed a certain mindset because how can you identify where they screwed up? If you you are critical of them in a way that maybe they can't be.
3: And on the flip side, because we've talked about this before, you often talk about how you look at millennials through a very positive lens. Oh yeah. That people kind of slam young people now, but they're very altruistic. They talk about and do community service much all the more time, than we did. Think beyond themselves. Yeah. So all the slamming of millennials that goes on is misplaced as well. To-
2: I totally, totally. It's a disgrace, and I'm sorry to have ever engaged in it. <laughs> John's looking at me as he says it.
3: <laughs> sorry, Liam. Well,
2: maybe you. Maybe sometimes it's deserved. <laughs> In my case, probably entirely. Well, you know, having raised a couple of teenagers, you you come to learn that it is the uh, the, it is the mission of every teenager as they move through the teen years to establish their independence, right? To break away from you as their parents. And then they get older, they have kids of their own, Mm -hmm. and guess what happens? So that's the cycle. I think it's to be celebrated and admired. And if OK Boomer is just a part of that, declaring their independence from the tyranny of the Boomers, I say right on. That's a phrase. It's <laughs> a phrase we used a lot back in the sixties.
1: People, and this is the thing: is that you could get canceled even for saying this. But I just think it, 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 civility is lost.
3: Right. I, I have to say, I saw a, a White House correspondent being criticized on Twitter the other day for ending a question to President Trump with the word "sir." Yeah. And she said, I will always be civil to whoever the president of the United right. States is because be civil of the office.
1: To
2: anyone How absurd. to you're speaking. How
3: ridiculous to tell a reporter they shouldn't just be polite right. to a politician. This
2: is why I don't read my Twitter mentions.
3: <laughs> <laughs> my other John, thing, just so going you know, to, you've yeah.
2: been canceled many times. <laughs> right. I okay. don't.
3: Yes, understand. Sure. <laughs> so uh, this was quite a week. We're all over the map. We Great
2: covered interviews. everything. Yeah, Rachel and, Rollins. And, and if you like what you're hearing or you hate yes. it, but your interest, you find it compelling, please tell a friend, share. You can subscribe mm-hmm. at all the usual places where you get your podcasts. Or you can check out our Twitter feed at Studio BZ Pod. And you know exactly when the latest uh, uh, episode is dropping.
3: And I'm at Paula Eben.
1: I am at Liam WBZ. i Z. I'm trying to look up right now, and I uh, and John and at decrepit boomer. <laughs> no,
3: <laughs> at Keller
1: at large. I was just please looking don't up, cancel. I John. was just looking up our ratings and reviews. So uh-huh. we are five out of five stars. Hey, okay, but we need more ratings. Okay, this is a sample size situation. Yeah, we that's not have, realistic. Bring well, us down well, to earth. yeah. We have It's if, true. If we if we, we need can't to be, be perfect. If we need to be a four point eight, that's fine. That
2: was my we'll, GPA we'll in high that's school. That's My Uber rating. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, I guess until next week, we'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you. you. No I'm so glad I had job. my copy of this. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> very good.
3: Oh, thank you.
2: Great
3: <laughs> Very, very good. good. I've always wanted to write a book, and i